Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, along with me on this journey back to the 80s is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. Jason, you are incredible. No, I am better than that. How are you, Bill? I'm doing well. Good to be on this pod with you tonight to discuss this adventurous film. The beginning of an adventure. But hopefully not the end. Hopefully not. I really hope not. Um, That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing the 1985 adventure comedy Remo Williams. The Adventure Begins, starring Fred Ward, Joel Gray, Kate Mulgrew, and Wilford Brimley. Directed by Guy Hamilton, this movie is rated PG-13 with a running time of two hours and one minute. This film is based on the Destroyer book series co-authored by Warren Murphy and Richard Sapar. The movie was nominated for an Oscar for Best Makeup. So what is this movie about? What's in the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. When a street-smart NYPD cop regains consciousness after bizarre mugging, he's got a new face and a new identity. Now he's Remo Williams, the number one recruit of a top-secret organization who's destined to become the ultimate criminal exterminator. Remo's mentor is Chun, a splendidly skillful but quirky old Korean master of the martial arts. Under Chun's guidance, Remo learns to dodge bullets, brave terrifying heights with cat-like grace, and thwart attackers with his bare hands. Meanwhile, genius computer hacker Harold Smith has discovered a series of government cover-ups and fun misappropriations, which all trace back to a corrupt millionaire and his high-ranked army pawn. From dangling suspense atop the Statue of Liberty to a full-scale military field attack, Remo evades evil enemies, escapes certain doom, and still has time to save the life of the spirited and sexy Major Fleming. Remo proves that even an ordinary guy can become a brilliant hero, and that justice will always triumph. Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. So that was What's in the Box. So let's move on to our earliest memories of this film. Jason, as always, start us off. (laughs) I have to start with the music. Man, that's something that just jumps right into my head. I hear the the main theme by Craig Safan or Safan, if you want, I'm to pronounce it the the exotic way. Like just like triumphant, bombastic. Love it. It gets me going every time, and it's got kind of that. Uh, what I'm calling the the Asian romantic theme as well. There's two themes within the main theme. I actually call it Remo and Chun's Asian uh, love theme. Okay. So uh, (laughs) I didn't see this movie in the theater, man, but um, I remember seeing it on cable afterward. And this was on rewatch for me as a kid, because as a kid, I thought Chun was hilarious. And I loved the action sequences I liked the concept as a kid. It just was kind of cool. You know, I'll actually read the IMDb logline right now. Officially dead cop is trained to become an extraordinary, unique assassin in service of the U.S. president. I mean, come on. Yeah. 
I'm in, especially as a, as a kid, this is 1985. So I'm what, 11, 12, I'm, I'm all in. So I thought this was like this wonderful discovery I'd made on TV when I saw it, because I missed it in the theater. And I was like, what is this? This is an absolute blast. This I'm all about the soundtrack. I'm all about the action and the comedy. It was a great blend for me as a kid. And I'm stressing that. Now, definitely, like I mentioned, Chun, played by the wonderful Joel Gray. He steals every scene he's in. He's got the best lines. Earliest memory is the uh, scene where we're introduced to Chun for the first time. And dodging bullets. This one's all about dodging bullets. It's like, what? You can do that? Well, thanks to the magic of film. Yes, you can. I always remember Remo's training. All the training sequences jumping from like one tall column to another. What freaked me out, man, as a kid, and this is what I always remember from this movie, is when Chun turns off the lights and Remo's got to then go down. Oh, yeah. You can only balance on these things with one foot. And then he's got to jump from one to the other in the dark, yes. which does very unsuccessfully, of course. That freaked me out as a kid. I was like, you're going to die, man. Don't do it. Don't <laughs> even try. Of course, the Statue of Liberty action sequence. I remembered in this one that that like the African-American guy has a fake hand. That was always like an early memory of mine. Like it just stuck okay. with me before mm-hmm. watching this again. I'm like, Isn't, doesn't he have like a fake hand or something in this? As it turns out, ladies and gentlemen, listeners out there, uh, he has a prosthetic arm because he had lost his arm in the Korean War, I believe is the backstory for his character. The iconic sequence at the end of this film, spoiler alert, pause or fast forward this pod for the next 20 seconds. Chun running across the water at the end uh, like a Korean Jesus. Amazing. That's always immediately I think of when I think of this movie Uh, and the theme, what I called Remo and Chun's love theme, that theme just comes in triumphantly at the, when he's cruising across the water at the end, it's great. I remember. Oh, also even, you know, before that sequence thinking Chun was dead. I remember that freaked me out as a kid. I was like, wait a minute. Did he just die in that truck accident? Rolled the truck that rolls down the hill 35 times. I loved Remo and Chun's relationship. And this, that's something that always stood out to me. And I remember when I think about this movie and as a kid, man, it's in the, t- the, the title is the adventure begins. This could be one of the biggest teases of all time as this 11 year old boy that I was 1985. And I catch a glimpse of this cool concept action adventure film. Where's the sequel? I'm like, why isn't there a sequel? The title says the adventure begins. It's like almost saying, yes, we're, we already planned. This is, it's all planned out. There's a sequel coming and it never came. What a huge disappointment. (sighs) I'm clearly not over it yet, but those are my earliest memories. Bill Bant, what are yours? For me, of course, it's the Statue of Liberty. Sure. Um, The poster of Remo Williams hanging off the top of the statue. I always thought that was really cool. Um, this was another one of these movies where, you know, we had our family gathering Thanksgiving, Christmas, and my uncle could not stop talking about this movie. And then right. he couldn't stop talking about Chung and Joel Gray as Chung. And I was like, I have no idea who Joel Gray is. So I was like, I didn't understand it was supposed to be a guy in makeup that was in this character, but he, he just couldn't stop talking about it. So I was like, oh, I got to see this movie. Um, so I initially rented it for the first time. I really enjoyed it. 
and then it was on cable all the time. Yep. And I used to watch it all the time too. And just like you, most of my, you know, most of the scenes that you liked, or I did when he does the little, the Ninja Warrior obstacle course in the, in the loft and makes it to the top and, you know, the fight scene, the Statue of Liberty, the scene where they break into uh, Grove's warehouse and getting chased by the Doberman Pinchers. Oh, sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. The same thing, the spoiler at the end. I always remember that. I just remember, you know, really enjoying this movie as a kid and just always was wondering why they never made another one. I love the relationship, too, between the two of them. It was kind of like a hate-hate thing and then became like a love-hate and then became like a a love-love thing. I thought that was kind of neat. Little father, you know, little son. Yep. The relationship has a nice arc in this film. Yeah. I always, always like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that was really my first introduction, I think, to Fred Ward. I had not seen the right stuff yet. So I <laughs> had no idea who he was. In the beginning, when he first becomes Remo, and they're like, oh, we did plastic surgery. And I was like, all they did was shave off his mustache. I, I filed a complaint. Yeah. I really had a look at it. And I was like, oh, okay. They put a fake nose on him, too. But that, but that was about it. Was, <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, do, we'll get into that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. For sure. That's hilarious. So, yeah, th- those are some of my earliest memories. Yeah, this is this is the film I watched a ton as a kid. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Are you ready to move on to some initial thoughts? Yes. Okay. Let's do it. Uh, do you mind if I start, Bill Bant? Go for it. I have a very specific take on this, watching it as an adult. Because this is, you know, why we do this podcast, in my humble opinion. One of the reasons I should say that we do this podcast is the nostalgia factor. We love the genre. We love that decade of films, but also because it's fun to do this analysis of the then and now, how we saw those films then, how they affected us then on so many different levels and how they, how they play now. How do we see them now? So Rebo Williams, The Adventure Begins is not working for me today, Bill. Oh, okay. I hate to say it. It was disappointing because I was, I think I chose this film and to do, and this doesn't hold up for me. Still love the concept. I love the actors in the movie. It was a matter of execution. And maybe it's just because I'm older now and I've become accustomed to the action films of today. But you know, you had actually said you had said uh, you were talking about the like obstacle course or the you called it the Ninja Warrior mm-hmm. course. I actually wrote this down, Bill. At the top, I wrote down Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins, a.k.a. Unarmed and Dangerous, which was the alternate title, the British title, yes. I believe, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Slow American Ninja Warrior. That was the other title I gave it. <laughs> <laughs> The operative word there for me being slow, the pacing is off for me now watching it today. The action sequences are slow. It feels like Fred Ward was a little bit too old for this role. Granted, he's supposed to be a little awkward in the beginning, and then he becomes more skilled as the film goes on. It wasn't as kinetic as I felt it needed to be. The energy was lacking. The pacing was off for me. That's my my take on it. In, this is just a general note. There are a lot of things that still work. Don't get me wrong. There are moments, uh, Joel Gray's performance, for instance, despite, you know, we'll talk about does his 
take on playing an elderly Korean man? Does that work? We'll talk about that. But he still is a wonderful actor, and he has so many wonderful quotable lines in this movie, all etc. But it just felt cheesy in for me overall uh, in moments. Also, the production design did not work for me. Uh, there are some things here where this just felt like a like a, a really low budget movie. If it was an all out comedy or a parody on action adventure films, if that's like what they were specifically going for and went all the way to that extreme, it could have worked. Or the other way, like because of what uh, maybe the budget they were working with. I did not actually do that research. I don't know how much money they were working on. Maybe you can answer that later. But so it just felt a little cheap at moments. And I'm sorry to come off as harsh because there are some, again, uh, still, I still have really fond memories of this. Like I would put it in my collection still. Anyway, that's just my overall initial thought. I'm glad, I'm still very glad we're doing it today and discussing it. We're going to have fun talking about it. Also, here's some other initial thoughts. The opening credits, it's the whole theme song. It's a long theme song, which I love, but we are just watching the title cards come up. We get all of the names, the cast and crew, and it's just shots of New York. It's just yeah, it's kind of weird. Just buildings. Okay, uh, I thought that was interesting. Here's one of the things I really did like about this. I thought the grip, the oh, there's an opening fight sequence where Fred Ward is our protagonist in this film, and he plays a an NYPD detective. Right, he's playing this cop, uh, a, a uniformed officer named uh, Sam. Macon, is that correct? I think is his character's name. I was trying uh, to figure that out. I couldn't. Yeah, Sam Macon. So it's a really gritty opening fight sequence. And then the entire fight sequence where he has actually been set up and he's kind of uh, fighting these thugs uh, looks like it's a robbery if something is going down or, uh, you know, and uh, he intervenes and there's a great sequence. There's no music actually in the sequence. It's just gritty. And he can, Fred Ward can throw a punch. So that's the setup of the movie is that he's this NYPD cop. He intervenes in this like drug bust kind of thing gone bad. There's a fight. He gets the best of these three uh, thugs and then gets back into his car. He's all bloody and beat up. He gets it back into his squat car only to be rear-ended by some mysterious character. And his cop car is pushed into the river and his car sinks and he's trapped. Then all of a sudden he wakes up in the hospital and we are to understand that he has gone undergone some kind of facial reconstruction and he has a brand new identity. Yes. And now he has thus been recruited by a top secret government agency to become a professional assassin for them. So that's like great setup. Right. And I thought the opening was really great. So I thought that was cool. That's just another initial thought I had here. And by the way, Here's a question for you right off the top, man. Being trapped in a sinking car underwater, that's a thing that's been done in movies time and time again. That freaks me out every time. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that's like top 10, like worst, like worst way to go, worst way to die. Being trapped in a car that's sinking underwater, filling with water. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Drowning. The whole scenario. That's not the that's not a way I want to go. Definitely not drowning. But also on top of that, being trapped in a car that's it just uh, you know, one of the best things my parents ever gave me, like, you know how your parents are always overprotective oh, yeah. and they give you the little tools, little things. 
is one of those. Uh, oh yeah. The busters. Yeah. That you can shatter a window with. You yep. just, and I actually kind of want to do it, like walk up to like, a, you know, go to some junkyard and test it like on a car to mm-hmm. see if it really works just to smack a window, see if it'll shatter. Oh yeah. It's cool. I have it in my glove compartment right now. Love those things. I have it go through my head all the time. Every time I'm driving somewhere near water, I'm like, oh, if I drive off, okay. What do I got? <laughs> got to let the got to let the car fill up so it pressurizes. Open the door. Yeah. Swim out. Yeah. I go through it all the time. The scenario. So you got my my initial take. My some initial thoughts just with the opening, and we're just kind of. Esta- I wanted to establish a little bit of the setup for the film. There there are some great shots in this. Uh, there are some decent stunts. The Statue of Liberty action sequence, for instance, when you have Fred Ward standing on top of the scaffolding, Ellis Island there, and you just kind of looking, overlooking New York City from a distance, and you see the, the New York City skyline. It's a very cool shot. So those are some initial thoughts. I don't know if you had any, just upon rewatching it as an adult man, if you had any other initial thoughts. Yeah, this was the interesting thing for me was when I was watching this, oh, okay, I remember that scene. And I remember that scene and then I remember that scene. And then when it got to the third act, I couldn't remember a damn thing that happened. Oh yeah. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? It drops off a cliff. Mm-hmm. I think the first, I like the third. Almost like thirds. literally. I say that because there's two, there's two sequences where trucks are rolling down a cliff. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. I interrupted you. I didn't have a problem with the time. Like you mm-hmm. do. I was yeah. actually enjoying it. But once he decides that he's going to take out the bad guy, I could not remember. I'm like, I've seen this movie at least 12 times. I couldn't remember anything until the end scene with Chun. Gotcha. I couldn't remember the car. I didn't remember anything about the log. I didn't remember how he took the bad guy out. Right. That was like I was watching it the first time. I couldn't believe that. It's a strange third act. It is. Things happen, yet it feels uneventful. Yeah. Maybe we'll we'll get to, you know, we'll break it down a little bit. But uh, it I agree with you. I only had this image in my head of I knew it was like a military field exercise of some kind that he was he kind of uh, inserted himself in and then action ensued. I forgot the little details of it. Like if you had asked me before the movie, I could have told you everything up to that. I would have right. liked at that point and just said, oh, yeah, Chun runs across the water at the end. Yeah. That would it. I, I would have missed like 25 minutes. It was crazy. Yeah. Isn't it weird? It's weird what we remember. Yeah. And don't remember. Yeah. 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 Um, the second thing was, you know, I mentioned that Kate Mulgrew was in this movie. Yeah. Totally wasted. Mm-hmm. So disappointed how they used her character. Sure. Because when you first Agreed. meet her, she's investigating the, the main bad guy. And she has this great quote where she talks to her military supervisor. Hey, I think there's something going on. Right. And he says something to the effect of, you know, hey, just because you're a woman, you know, it makes no difference to me that you're a woman. And then she turns around and says, well, you know what? It makes no difference to me that you're a man. And I was like, oh, cool. We got we got a tough girl here right now. Right. And then strong even, female protagonist. And then like one of her cohorts tries to hit on her and she just totally blows them off. The first time she meets Remo, Remo tries to make like small talk and she kind of laughs them off. And I'm like, OK, cool. Like she's really going to come in at the end. Standing her ground. Yeah. And and help. And then she became damsel in distress. I was like, what the hell? She acted like she had never held a gun in her life. You're in the military. You're a major. You're a major. You're not a private. 
you're a major major and, Fleming. Yeah. And you have to me just a waste. I was like, I felt so bad for her. I was like, Oh my God, your character is terrible. Well, I agree with you, Bill. And I, I feel like there was there, it lacked follow through because they had, like you said, set it up as if you're like, Ooh, okay. This is, there's some male chauvinism going on here. Right. Yes. And she's going to have to fight against that because she is a woman in a position of authority and she has to stand her ground. She has every right to, and she's a smart, capable woman, very strong, et cetera. So, but then never really gets to prove that or show it or display it. Like you said, she just kind of comes off a little bit on the uh, weaker side toward the end. Yeah. It's just, it, I, but they set it up as if, okay, we're going to see a little, at least mini arc with her character where she gets to be a heroine at the end. Yeah. Really uh, help save the day and really give Remo a serious assist or be, you know, on the same level with him uh, in her own way and use her military prowess, tactics, strategy, whatever it might be, her knowledge in order to help him save the day. And that doesn't happen, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Kate Mulgrew, she's great. Great presence, but uh, underused. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we talked um, about Running Man where he had Maria Conchita Alonso, who all of a sudden becomes part of this military uprising. Well, you you have have freedom fighter. Yeah. And then you have a major in the armed service who then turns, it does the exact opposite. Does it right? Does nothing. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what the hell? That really bumped me out. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to get into, because I, I, we kind of have to touch on this, is Joel Gray as Chung. Absolutely. I think we both agree his performance was really good. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was nominated for a Golden Globe for this performance. Right. Um, like I said, it was nominated for an Oscar for the makeup in this movie. But I think we can also both agree if they were to redo this movie today, there's no way you're doing someone in makeup like that. You you have to find an, an Asian actor to perform that role. Hands down. Yeah. Hands down 110%. Mm-hmm. Because you can and you should. And that's the right thing to do. I mean, it's just... and. It doesn't make any sense to do it otherwise because it simply comes off as being racially insensitive and ignorant, inappropriate to say the least. Mm-hmm. But, and I, this is, I even hesitate to even say, but I do agree with you in the way that, I mean, I don't hesitate to agree with you, but I has, you know, Joel Gray's a capable actor. We know this. Yeah. He's quite the talent and his delivery. And his um, mannerisms and his portrayal of the character is great. It's just that he's, let's putting it plainly, he's a white guy playing an old Korean guy. And he did have serious reservations about taking this role, just to yeah. you know, put that out there, that he, they had to ask him a couple times to do it. And then, of course, I read somewhere like they couldn't find anyone else. And I'm like, come on, please. You know, as a kid, I had no idea that he was not that that was just someone in makeup agree this is definitely an ip i wish they would come back and put it in the right hands and revisit we will talk about that bill bant i knew you were going to say that because you above all people i know you you look for bad movies that would make good movies Mm -hmm. or that could be remade as really good movies and i think this is a prime example of that 
I had no idea. There's over a hundred books in this series. Is that crazy? Yeah. I had no idea. The Destroyer I was like, series. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that was that much. I was like, I got to start finding something. How crazy is that? And how do, how does it not come across like that? That series of books has never come across my radar. No. Or just in popular culture, whatever. But to have that many books in that series and never have heard of it, even mm-hmm. though I was such a fan of this movie. I, and I, yeah, it's just kind of a strange thing. So it would be fun to check those out to investigate that. But regarding, you know, Joel Gray and his portrayal of the character and whatnot, it, it doesn't go as far as to be as quite as insensitive, let's say, as a Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Correct. Which yeah, is yeah. regarded pretty much as the, the most. Yeah, I would say the if, worst. You're, if you're doing the spectrum, you would right. definitely have Mickey Rooney on one end, Joel Gray's all the on the other. Yeah, because I think there was some awareness, like you said, especially on Joel Gray's behalf, just not enough overall, as I think, but that's also because of the culture at the time. This is 1985, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, this is a different world. Thankfully, I would like to think we progressed since then. Um, because that would there's no doubt in my mind that would ever that just wouldn't happen today. Yeah. My issue now is I think we're trying to overcorrect. Sure. Because it's like everyone was mad at Brian Cranston because he was in um, the the upside because he wasn't really a cripple. But I'm like, come on. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, that's that's too, yeah. OK, well, that's a little too much. It's like, you know, where where do we draw the line for, for this? We have to remember we have to let's just remember from and, and I'm speaking from an actor's point of view. You have to be actors have to be able to play characters that are unlike themselves as people. It's part of the mystery and magic of movie making and acting to be in the first place, you know. Yes, if it to go to the extreme of playing someone of a different race when there are <laughs> completely capable characters of that same race that can fill that part that does not make sense and will not fly. Yeah, I almost, I almost feel like we're getting to the point where it's like, oh, you're having a cop move. You need to hire a real cop to play it. And I'm just like, come on, man, it's acting. Right. Let's understand, like, if it's if it's a book and it's based and it has you know, like an African-American character, yes, you should put an African-American character on the screen. Don't try to substitute it out with, you know, white or, or whatever. But let's not get too crazy with this, too. Acting is the act of make-believe, pretending you're someone else. It, at the end of it, yeah, there's still it's performance, it's entertainment. Yes, um, it's there is. Harrison Ford did not need to get a degree in archaeology to play Indiana Jones. Just let it go. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. Harrison Ford is an archaeologist slash adventurer in real life. That is a fact. But yeah, definitely the Joel the Joel Gray character. As much as I like the performance, yeah, that's. That's an 80, we recognize 85 that. thing. I, I, yeah. yeah. That's not I think, I'm glad you brought it up, Bill. And I'm, it, we need to, we recognize it and it had to be addressed. So I'm glad, uh, yeah, uh, that we're talking about it. So, uh, yeah, let's move on to our next segment then with that. Absolutely. Let's move on to some favorite scenes. What are some of our favorite scenes from Remo Williams? The adventure begins. Uh, well, I'm going to start with Chun's introduction. I've always loved this scene. Because this is, for me, about the dodging of the bullets. It's dodging oh, bullets. Yeah. Uh, so as a kid, it's like the suspension of disbelief was upheld for me because I was like, wow, could you actually do this? 
could this actually could this be a real thing? So I described the setup earlier. We know that uh, NYPD detective Sam Macon is now pronounced dead, but he comes back to life and uh, is now a professional assassin for this top secret government agency. And he has been given the, the name Remo Williams. And his handler is a na- guy named uh, McCleary. And McCleary takes him to what Remo thinks is going to be his first assassination, his first job. And Remo goes into this New York City apartment. There is this elderly Korean man, just uh, either, I, I don't know what he's doing. Is he eating? I forget yeah. what he's doing in the scene. He's having dinner. Remo walks into the scene and kind of puts his finger up to his lips, says, and, you know, be quiet or I'll be quiet, you know, just because Remo walks in and he has his gun out. <laughs> he's yeah. Got his pistol out. And this, a little bit more diminutive uh, Korean gentleman is enjoying his dinner and just kind of looks at him and stares at him. And Remo's like, Shh, you know, I mean, he's because he thinks he's there at this apartment to perform a hit and he's looking for his mark. And he goes up the stairs and the door is locked. He comes back down and he asks the Korean gentleman, how do I open the door? And he says, nobody else is here. And then Remo puts it together and he thinks the Korean gentleman is the man he's there to kill. And as it turns out, the Korean man, uh, who we find out soon is Chun, he uh, kind of pushes Remo's buttons a little bit, kind of gets aggressive, and Remo starts shooting at him. And Chun does this quick like movement where he leans back and he dodges the bullets. The bullets fly by him. And there's some little cool movie-making techniques here in the editing. They're quick cuts. And obviously... We know how fast a bullet can travel. So the suspension of disbelief has to be there. You have to kind of go with it a little bit, but they do a pretty good job with the cuts and the editing and the sequence. And again, it credits Joel Gray because I love his mannerisms. I love the blank stare on his face. And he's so centered and grounded and and at peace and uh, very calm and, and using that like kind of Zen martial arts technique and obviously, Remo is very rough around the edges. And so Remo tries to get the best of him, not only sh- trying to shoot him, which he fails at, he tries to tackle him several times and basically beats himself up because he, he keeps missing and running into walls. He punches out glass and he gets all bloodied and beat up. And Chun, I don't know if he even touches him at any point in this opening introduction. But then we learn that Chun He's going to be his mentor and uh, instructor in the ways of Sinan. I can't pronounce this Sinan- right. Sin- Sinanju. Sinanju. Yes. Sinanju. It's a great introduction. I, I love this scene. It was so fun as a kid because it was cool that this martial artist mentor character could dodge bullets and was so smooth and so quick and so fast, even though he's elderly, right? that he gets the best of Remo Williams and then says, oh, by the way, I'm not the guy you were here to kill. I am actually your teacher. I had that down as one of my favorite scenes too. Sure. I think what I liked about that scene too was, you know, when Remo first comes in and he's just trying to, hey, taking out your boss. And he's like, oh no, there's That's no right. one here. That's what he says, yeah. It's that surprise on Remo like, whoa, I got to take out this guy? Oh, piece of cake. And then- I think he actually even feels sorry for him at first because because yeah when he realizes that or he is mistakenly thinks 
that Chun is his mark, that he's supposed to take him out. He actually doesn't want to. He actually says, look, I don't want there to be an altercation here. I'm just going to leave. But then Chun kind of stands up and gets in his way. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. Like he doesn't at first attempt to kill Chun. Mm -hmm. He actually just wants to leave. And then there's a little bit of overleaping. Yeah. On that oh, one, yeah. Where, yeah, it's like, let me just throw myself at everything oh. in this basement <laughs> and make sure it knocks over. So I was like, oh, yeah, this is a little silly. The choreography is good in moments and then horrendous in others when he literally leaps across a table and dives, then goes sliding all the way across the table and off the other end. Yeah. You know, it, it gets, I'm like, oh, that's a bit much. That's a bit dramatic, <laughs> but it's still fun. Right. See, this is a perfect example of the then and now perspective, because as a kid, it was an absolute blast. Yes. So entertaining. And it did get me as a kid, too, where I didn't realize he was set up. Right. Just to see what kind of skills he actually had. Yeah. See what Chung had to work with here. He had a lot of work. And it is fun at the end of the sequence when because now McCleary, Remo's handler, comes in and says, this is Chun your mentor, your instructor, he's going to teach you uh, the ways of this martial art, which I'll pronounce it wrong a million times, Sinanju. Sinanju, got it right? All right, one for one. And uh, McCleary looks at Chun and says, so what do you think? Talking about Remo and (laughs) Chun just has, just totally rips him apart. Oh, yeah. Basically, he's like a, what is it, like a baboon? He moves like a baboon with two club feet. He just rips him apart. He says he's clumsy. And all these things, but there's something in his eyes that, uh, you know, and that uh, I'm, I might be able to work with him. And thus we're off. It's a great introduction kind of, uh, and gets us going in this movie. It's good stuff. So I agree too. That was one of my favorite scenes. Um, yeah. So it takes me to my next favorite scene then is the Ninja Warrior obstacle course. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I think we kind of figured out that Chun and, Remo literally lived together. And so it's like 24 hour training. It's a pretty sweet New York City apartment loft. Yes. Very spacious. It is. It's very nice. So they have this obstacle course like built into the loft. You know, it's like eight o'clock. Chun's watching his soap operas, which <laughs> that's like his. It's the best. <laughs> yes. That's, What's that's... the name of the soap opera? Is it Beyond the Point or something like that? Oh, I don't even remember. I think that's what it's called. But yes, Chun happens to, that's the one like American piece of like culture that Chun thinks is the, the best thing. Like, yeah, the best thing America has to offer is this particular soap opera. So uh, Remo asks, because he's hungry, he wants dinner um, because now he's on this special diet. So Chun's like, okay, I'm going to make dinner. You go do the, the course. And it's cool because it's just this little, you know, like it's a board, there's a old fashioned tub and there's all these bars and he literally has to hop on one to the other to the to the top loft where the beds are and of course every time he does a, a jump he's always trying to look to chung for approval and chung's just totally ignoring him but he knows what's going on because he's like you know move faster balance take your weight off your front foot and um, he eventually right. makes it to the top and he's like ta-da i did it and then chung's like oh yeah okay great like he's not impressed and he's like oh, i can just go back down so reba thinks down's a lot easier than up and then chung switch off the lights he's like okay and Remo's like, whoa, 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 I can't see anything. And it's just a great lesson. of like, basically, it's like, you've done this so many times. You don't need to see it on the way down. You should know it at this point. 
And of right. course, Remo doesn't even get the first step and you know have the silly <laughs> crashing sound at, at right, the of end. Course. And Chun's disappointed. So still more of that hate hate relationship going on there, even though Remo was trying to get a little little love, a little approval. But uh, right, right. It's work. good stuff, man, because there there's you know a lot of there are training sequences in this, but you don't get the the classic. 80s training montage do you in this film no you did which not. is kind of unique about this now that i think about it mm-hmm. uh, i'm surprised i didn't write that down for some reason you do get a lot of these brief uh but kind of cool training moments because we have the american ninja warrior moments because he's trying to establish his balance we've seen him on top of a high-rise building walking along the edge we've seen this particular scene which is a great scene i agree this is i should have put it on my list because it is also one of my earliest memories is that particular scene but also you know we have chun brings out the fingerboard that he's got to tap yes. regarding you know to practice get the strength up in his fingers so that he can just use his fingers to disable a, an enemy uh yeah just the, hitting yep. the fingerboard to strengthen the tips of the fingers and the fingernails and what else what other abilities oh of course the dodging of the bullets that's mm-hmm. a great moment when Chun just pulls out the gun randomly and starts firing at him in the loft in the apartment. Oh yeah. And Fred Ward is dodging the bullets. So we get a lot of those. And then of course the beach scene with Ward running across the sand, which I'm going to bring up later. Yeah. Almost running on top of the sand. Oh, he has float. float. Yeah. Float. Yeah. It's a lot of like <laughs> agility, which is cool. Like yeah. if, because like you said, Bill, if this could be very, I mean, it's an IP and we'll get into a potential remake or reboot of this, but if they really took that aspect of this and really honed in on these cool, uh, almost fantastical abilities, but made it realistic. And again, I talk about suspension of disbelief, but the way that Chun trains Remo and Remo is able to develop these abilities, that's a really cool aspect of this professional assassin, right? Because Chun and Sinanju is supposed to be, what is he called? Professional assassination is the ultimate form of public service. I think yes. he says at one point, which is disturbing, but it's, yeah. still, it's still, it's as if it is an art form and there's a finesse. That's the word yes. I'm looking for to it. And that's, what's really cool about this to me. And it was as a kid at that part, that aspect of it is still cool for me today. And I would like to that to be developed more in either a current iteration or Netflix series or reboot film. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But that scene, yeah, the American Ninja Warrior scene is great. So I've got, a, you know, one of my other favorite scenes actually is very brief. There's this turn and it's right before like the third act. And you kind of touched on it earlier, Bill is when Remo realized the stakes are high now because what has happened is that Remo is part of this top secret government agency known as Cure. Uh, There's only a few people involved in this agency, one being Wilford Brimley, who is the head of the agency known as Harold Smith and and also called by Chun Emperor Smith, which is hilarious. And then you have Remo's handler, we know as uh, McCleary, whom his character's name, he's credited as Khan McCleary, C-O-N-N, Khan yes. McCleary, mm-hmm. but they keep calling him Mac. And then you have Chun. So there's four of them technically part of this operation, this top secret operation. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are tracking down this 
organization. It's uh, Grove Industries, right? Is that correct? Grove, and yeah. they are developing weapons and there's something called the HARP, which is like High Altitude Reconnaissance Probe or something along that line. So those, mm-hmm. that's the acronym for it. Anyway, he's the bad guy. Grove, that is. Grove Industries. They're the baddies. And they're getting a little too close. And George Grove, who is the main baddie in this, our antagonist, gets wind that Remo is, you know, part of this top secret organization. They're trying to figure out who these people are, meaning Remo and uh, Cure, this agency. And so they've been found out, basically. And in this scene, Remo, I believe, has just gotten his ass kicked. I forget what happened. It was the whole Statue of Liberty sequence, I think, is what's happened. And there's just a lot of, and he goes back to the main office, the cure office, which is like this really humble, it's undercover. It's like a covert office in a national bank in New York City. And you have Wilford Brimley sitting like at an IBM slash Apple IIe computer, which is absolutely hilarious to me. Yes. But that's how he gets all of his top secret information and doles it out to Remo and gives him his assignments. Remo comes in, he's all pissed. He's like, Somebody found out they're trying to kill me now. And Wilford Brimley says, well, here's the deal. You've been found out. They're going to figure out who we are. And we're supposed to be the ultimate covert agency. And that means only one thing. And Remo's like, what? And Harold Smith, a.k.a. Wilford Brimley, says, we are done. We have we can't leave any trace. And he pulls out his little capsule with like his little cyanide pill, right? It's like as if he's going to have to kill himself. And McCleary's like, yep, and they'll find my body somewhere else. And then Remo is like, well, then what happens to me? Because they're, they're basically saying they have to kill themselves to leave no trace of this top secret agency. And Remo's like, so what do I do? And Wilford Brimley's like, well, that's what Chun is for. And in that moment, Remo realizes the stakes here. Because this agency can never be found out. They cannot be discovered. Their identities cannot be revealed. And neither can his, obviously. So that's why Chun, whom he's thinking is his mentor, but now also becoming kind of a father figure and friend, Chun is actually there as an insurance policy as well. He is there to take out Remo, in essence, kill Remo in case they are discovered, their identities are discovered. And that hits Remo hard. And I love that moment. I love that scene because the, the, the tone of the film kind of shifts and things get a little more serious where it's like, Ooh, now there's some real weight to this. And that's what I, upon this rewatch as an adult, I guess, you know, I talk about this, but then, and now that scene affected me more this time where I'm like, Oh, here's now the shit just got real. Yeah. So it was a cool turn for me. Cause I was like, okay, a little campy, a little cheesy, a little fun up to this point. And I'm like, Ooh, now now the stakes are high. We've got some interesting relationship dynamics now because is Chun just his mentor or is Chun really there just to make sure Remo doesn't fuck up and do something that could hurt the agency? So then if he does, Chun would kill him uh, because that's the following scene. Remo goes back to pack up his bags because he's got to go on a mission with McCleary and doesn't say anything to Chun and Chun already knows he can sense it. He knows what's on Remo's mind. He's like, you want to ask me something, don't you? And Remo doesn't even reply. And Chun says, well, the answer is yes. I will kill you if I have to. 
I guess it's kind of like both of those scenes. I'm going to put those together. I like that because it, again, the stakes go up. I like that aspect of the the turn in that in that point of the movie. Yeah, Jason, I definitely have to agree with the then and now because I think watching it now, I never realized that significance. Like we get found out, we all have to kill ourselves. As a kid, I don't think that registered that they were going to basically commit suicide, and then Chung would take out Williams, and I was like, oh man, why did I never? see that before but yeah that definitely falls under the then and now before it's yeah, not like right oh wait you feel the dramatic weight of it now yeah it was more like oh if remo doesn't do this mission chung's going to take care of like that part i understood but i didn't realize how deep it was like the building would miraculously set on fire smith would be dead from a, an apparent heart attack so I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that is pretty crazy. And it, it, in a way, yeah, it is kind of like a tonal thing because it's like that's a very serious, serious moment right there. It's like, <laughs> he, he got- if we mess up, man, we're we're done, done, done. Not you get fired, done. We're dead, done. You, yeah, you'll see that in other like espionage movies, right? Or um, that type of espionage thriller type movie where you, the character says we can never be taken alive. You can, right. they can't take us alive because we are too valuable. We know too much. And so they have the contingency. Yeah. So love that scene. Yeah. Cause it gets real. And what hits me than that, what I like from a, like a writing standpoint, a dramatic standpoint is the fact that I love to see an arc in a relationship and we're seeing Chun and Remo's relationship develop as they're working together. And for Remo to find out that, Chun, whom he is really accepted now as a mentor, could actually be his own assassin. <laughs> it's yeah. upsetting. And you see why he's disturbed by that. Mm-hmm. You got another favorite scene, Bill Ban? Yeah, I guess it go- almost goes to the next scene where it is the mission. It's the mission to go to Grove yeah, Industries and sure. figure out what is going on. What, you know, what evidence can they find to take down Grove and uh, hopefully not have to kill themselves. <laughs> so they break into Grove Industries and the smartest Doberman Pinchers ever put on. What film. is going on with these super. Yeah. These dogs are super determined. smart. Dobermans. Yes. Yeah. I think that's what they are. They're SSDs. I think that's yeah. what they're called. There you go. <laughs> so basically it's Mac and Remo. Mac's going to go find some evidence and then Remo's supposed to go off and, and check something else. And he comes across these uh, three Dobermans. And of course the Dobermans come to attack him and he, he jumps up on the, the scaffold and gets to the top and is like, Hey, I got away. And then of course the Dobermans like, look around like, all right, how can I get up there? One of them finds a staircase, starts going up the staircase. The other one finds like one of those old school New York escape ladders. Right. And the two of them literally jump on it, clamp on with their teeth to pull the weight down. And then jump up and go around the other side. So now they're cornering him. And Remo's like, I got, I got to keep going up. And the dogs are like, oh, okay. Like almost backtrack. And oh, find another great. way. And you actually see the dogs go through it. Yeah, like, they're like thinking they're, it out. Right. It's pretty cool, to be honest. It's actually, that's a fun sequence because it's not a lot of camera tricks. No. Or really like it could have gone bad with like bad puppetry or some sort of special effects with the dogs or something. 
mm-hmm. but they don't really cut her out. Those dogs, they trained them yeah. to do a lot of the movements. And it, it makes it seem as though these dogs are literally tracking Remo throughout the entire sequence. Yeah. Then they're actually like anticipating Remo's next move. Like, Oh, right. he's yeah. going to go to the roof. All right. Let's get to the roof first and just wait for him up there. Uh, yeah. Those dogs just cracked me up. That was just cool. Just watching those dogs, just chase after Remo. And then there's even another scene where Remo gets to the, the project that supposedly Grove industries is working on it and it's right. like structs. So he's trying to escape and he finds like this wire to walk across over these buildings. So you figure he can get across and he's like, all right, dog, let's see you try to do this too. And then you just see the dog, like kind of look at the wire, like, you know what? I can do this too. He starts going across the wire. And you're just like, Oh my God. It's hilarious. That's where it got to be too much for me. I'll be honest with you. I still liked it though. It was like, I I thought it was cheesy good. It jumped a shark there for me. I was like, oh, you went one step too far for me. This dog is not going across the high wire. I love the dog going across the high wire. It's funny. (laughs) What is funny about that though, it is, don't get me wrong, it's still fun, is that the dog is almost whimpering a little bit like, oh, I got to do this. Yep. Oh, this is going to be, this is going to suck, but I'm going to do it anyway. And he yeah. starts crawling out on the high wire. And you're like, oh my God, is this dog really going to walk across the high wire? Great stuff. Yeah. Those are the most determined Dobermans I've ever seen in my life. They're awesome. It gets me because it looks so real when that moment you brought up when they pull the escape ladder down. Yeah. Because you see, you literally see the Doberman leap up and grab the bottom rung of the ladder with its jaw. And start, and it dangles. The dog is hanging. Yep. And because he can't pull the ladder down by himself, the other dog jumps up and does the same thing, grabbing the bottom rung with its jaw. Yep. So the both of them hanging by the bottom of the ladder pull it down and are able to climb on it. And it's like, oh my God. <laughs> and it's like, how did they do that? Yeah, it's great. That's a fun sequence. Uh, something we've mentioned a few times already, and it is uh, the finale. It literally is the end of the movie. It's actually the end of the movie. Remo has uh, taken care of our baddie, George Grove, and all of the other antagonists associated with him. And he finally, he gets to the, I guess it's a lake, and Remo and Major Fleming are about to get away on a motorboat off this pier, and Chun actually had left to go look for Remo. So they don't want to leave without him. At least Remo is not going to leave without Chun. And he's like, where's Chun? Fleming's like, she, well, he went to look for you. And then all of the bad, the, all the army guys are coming down the hill and Chun gets cornered because he can't get to the pier because the army guys have cut him off. How is he going to get to Remo? Is it standing at the end of the pier, ready to get hop on the boat? And so Chun decides to, show off his ultimate mastery of Sinanju because this was established earlier that if you concentrate and you basically run fast enough that you're literally floating on top of whatever surface you're running on. So it's established earlier. Like I had mentioned, we talked about uh, part of the training sequence when Remo is running across the sand and we see him floating across the sand now we get to see Chun literally walk on water, but he's actually running on water. And the theme music kicks in. He runs across the water to make it to the pier. And obviously, the army guys can only watch from a distance. 
And thus Chun and Remo get away on the boat. And there's some funny lines at the end. And that's it. So it's just a great finale because we get to see Chun do what he does. Like we get to actually see him employ his own mastery uh, or show off there at the end. Like mm-hmm. that's the ultimate move running fast enough that you can actually attain some uh, like a, a state of higher being so that you're actually flying or floating. Yeah. I know that was the scene I used to watch a lot as a kid just to see it. If I could figure out how they did that effect, like, Oh, can I see the glass or right? It looks whatever cool. they did. Yeah. 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 It looks pretty good. It does. So yeah, that, that is a cool scene. It's the memorable scene. Yeah. It's great stuff. Did you have another favorite scene or no, I actually did. Was that it? Do we get through? Okay. Let's move on. Which I'm surprised we didn't talk about Statue of Liberty, but I'm sure. Well, well, we're going to talk about it, Bill. Okay. We're going to talk about it. All right. That's good. (laughs) We'll we'll get to it. We didn't forget about it. Don't worry. We've got more. We've got more segments coming up. More segments. All right. Anything else you want to talk about with the music? I'll do this really quick. So Craig Safan, Safan, Safan is our composer. He did some great stuff in the 80s. You know, I love this theme. I had sent Bill Bant, I think, the YouTube clip of this. And he was like, you know, this sounds just like another film we did on this podcast, The Last Starfighter. Sounds like that theme. And I was like, no, it doesn't. And then I played it. I'm like, yes, it does. And it's the same composer. That's why. So, yeah, totally sounds the same. At least there's a portion of The Last Starfighter theme that sounds very similar to this themes kind of that uh the the march with the horns it's good stuff so shout out to craig seven and i'm butchering his name i apologize that was the composer of this official soundtrack for remo williams and also a shout out to my guy i'm just calling him my guy tommy shaw who did the title song for this film it's named called remo's theme in parentheses what if is actually the name of the song you know, I was listening to the song during the the end credits, right? And I'm like, boy, this guy's voice sounds familiar. Why does his voice sound familiar? Well, he actually <laughs> performs a song in one of the, the great Miami Vice episodes entitled The Glades. And yeah. it's a song called Girls With Guns. And it's a song I had recorded off the TV <laughs> and had it on a cassette. And I played it to death at the University of Miami while I was working on my word processor writing. I would play these Miami Vice songs that I taped off the television ad nauseum. And my sweet mate, Tom McKenzie would come across and be like, Jason, can you stop playing the same song over and over again, please? It's really annoying. I'm like, oh, sorry. Cause the walls were thin. He could hear it. And it's just like, I kept rewinding and playing it over and over again. So Tommy Shaw was the guitarist for the band sticks. And uh, he did the theme song for Rima Williams. And also had done that song for a Miami Vice episode. So that's why I kind of had to mention it in the music segment. There you go. That's got to be one of the worst closing credits songs. What? From the 80s films. I'm sorry. How dare you, Bill? How dare you be exactly right? It is awful. It is it, terrible. I was like, you cut off it's the theme music to play this stupid <laughs> song? Yeah, it's not like a good John Parr. No. That fist pumping, cheesy, great 80s, you know, no, this is not a strong. No, I would say top 10 worst closing credit songs from an 80s movie. It's no, uh, you know, that's what friends are for. That's No, not at all. I totally forgot about that song. I'm like, what the hell? I was all expecting to hear Craig's score. And then I'm like, yeah, 
I was like, oh, if you're going to shut that off, there's got to be something better. I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what is this? But then I rec- yeah, I'd recognize the name Tommy Shaw, too. And I was like, oh, shit, he did something for Miami Vice. Damn it. Right. Yep. All right. Well, you, you dropped a peg, bud. I'm sorry. No. Song blow. I and I meant Poor to go Tommy. look up look up to see if they actually had a, an official music video for this. I never did though. I don't think I would have been able to handle that either. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. As, as soon as the credits, just just turn the movie off. You don't need to watch credits. Yeah. Or or just mute it. All right. What's next, Bill? All right. We're moving on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And the reason why we call it Swiss cheese. Jason, that's your cue. Asleep at the wheel. The reason that we called Swiss I'm like, cheese. Why, Bill? Why yeah. do we call it? I'm yeah. like on the edge of my seat. I'm going, why? Oh, I have the answer. Although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes. And if it is not Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. All right. Um, so you, you said you didn't really have any Swiss cheese for this one, did you? I filed a lot of complaints with the or with the complaints department, but I'm trying to think if any of my complaints are actual holes, like plot holes. And this might count as one you touched on it earlier. And I'll just say it again, because it's fun to talk about is the fact that Fred Ward is playing NYPD cop, Sam Macon. And he's kind of has the thick slick back, black hair mustache. In the beginning, we see him, you know, and then in the next scene, He's just shaven and his hair is a bit shaggy. He's got bedhead and we're supposed to understand he's had some sort of facial reconstruction. Is that correct? That he now looks different because he touches his face. He's like, what have you done to me? Kind of thing. And he looks or he sees himself in the mirror as if he almost doesn't recognize his own face. Yeah. He went from like Freddie Mercury, 1980. Right. To totally to just clean shaven Fred Ward. Yeah. And we're like, wait, no, you're just the same guy. They just shaved you. That's all while you were unconscious. That's no, that doesn't, didn't work. Yeah. I had to go back and watch that opening scene again, just to see like, all right, what, what was different? And I was like, uh, no, I think he, they puffed up his nose a little bit and that was it. That yeah. Was the, that was yeah, the yeah, only yeah. difference. I just thought that. So I don't know if that's like, I guess it's kind of a whole, because in my mind, like he, they didn't change him really at all. Yeah. Also, I think Fred Ward is about 42 years old at this point. And I just thought it was not that that's by any means old, but if you're recruiting an agent, like a professional assassin for a top secret agency, I don't know. I just felt. Yeah, that was kind of my Swiss cheese, too. I was like, yeah, this is the, this the guy? best person you could find. <laughs> really? Because we're talking about a top secret agent that has. A, a total of three members like it, this is the elite of the elite yeah and he's so the best they're pretty selective him. granted he's an ex-marine right he had the, like he had the credentials yes but he's a little older at this point yeah i didn't understand why they recruited him no anyway yeah because you literally see him in the opening scene he's like eating a i don't even know what the hell he's eating right drinking coffee <laughs> like, yeah yeah, it was. Not. I kind of liked. I actually, I have to say, in that police squad, the police car, his little coffee holder. Yes, that was cool. <laughs> yes. Some yeah, some kind of troll. He's got like thing. a troll or gnome thingy on, is stuck to his dashboard. 
and it's got like a little tutu, like a little elastic band around yeah. its waist. And he sticks his cup in there. And I'm like, oh, that works. Mm-hmm. I, could, I could use one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have any uh, holes? That was just mine. The whole just like. Okay, that was it. Okay. I mean, it. you have that supercomputer that tells you everything. And that, that's what the computer. The Apple out. 2E? Yeah. To yeah. recruit him? Come on. There's got to be someone better out there. They, I don't know. I, I love that. We could actually, I want to talk about that real quick too. The that's it. That's all I got really for actual Swiss cheese. I'm going to move into complaints department. Yeah, got a couple. Okay, we'll just start here. I'm still stuck in the hospital room. Okay, go we ahead. now know that Fred Ward is now supposedly unrecognizable to himself, which is doesn't make any sense. But he's shaven. He's got bed head. His hairstyle is slightly different. And now. This top secret government organization, whom we are introduced to the character of Mac McCleary, he says, you're not Sam Macon anymore. Sam Macon is dead. Now you work for us. And your name is, hold on a second. Let me look at the bottom of your hospital bedpan. I love that, though. It's hilarious, but you're telling me this top secret organization didn't plan ahead for the guy's name? See, Jason, because you're not a parent, you don't understand. Like, <laughs> well, yeah. When you're when you're Explain trying to figure to me, out no. when you're trying to figure out your kid's name, mm-hmm. you have a couple of options. And you know, when you see that child for the first time, then the, the name like kind of imprints itself. I see. You know, so oh, okay. I see. so he needs to see him first to right. see what to name was going to fit. Yeah. Bit. So he might have had a couple backup names. I was like, you know what, these aren't going to work. And it's then true. that's when he picked up the bedpan and he saw Remo Williams. And if he didn't come up with a name, he may have thought, but maybe we should ask yeah. him what he wants his new name to be. Mm-hmm. Like ask Remo or. Yeah. Anyway. So, so I he, thought that he might, he might've had a name going in. And then when he saw him, he was like, ah, you know what? No, that's, doesn't No. Remo. That's it. Do you know any Remos? Have you ever known a Remo? No, I've never met a Remo. That's a pretty unique name. Yes. I guess this movie wasn't popular enough to bring us little Remos. <laughs> All right. So uh, my first complaint is Remo. Well, Sam should have never survived that initial fight scene. Okay. So he gets set up where it's supposed to look like these two guys are harassing this other guy for whatever it is. And he comes and breaks it up. Right. Puts this, is the very opening the of the, this is the very opening of the movie. So he puts the guys up against the wall to, you know, read the rights or whatever, whatever he's going to do to him. And then the other guy who he thinks he's helping whacks him in the back of the head with a two by four. Right. Remo falls. And when you see that two by four, there are three nails. Nails in it. Yeah. They should have been embedded in the back of his skull. He should have been <laughs> dead right there. Totally. Yeah. As soon as I saw, I was like, whoa, wait, is that? How is he not like bleeding out or, or right. something? That's a good call. I, I saw that too. I'm like, oh, damn, that is tough. Yeah. He's hitting him with the nails in the board. And I'm like, oh, that's not going to feel good. No, that should have been right in the skull. He would have been tapioca at that point and in the film. But I was wondering, I was like, were they, I mean, how much were they supposed to rough him up? Oh, yeah. So that is kind of a question I have. Mm-hmm. Like if he failed the fight. That whole thing is staged, correct? Like the whole thing was staged so that uh, Sam would get incapacitated and thus 
McCleary can push him off the pier into the river or whatever. And then he would be presumed dead and it can come back to become Remo. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's kind of involved if you think about it, like yes. to, to choreograph that whole thing, just to set up Sam so that he can be. Yeah. That definitely took a lot of legwork or you know, yeah. a lot on the Apple IIe. And that brings us to my next complaint. Oh, excellent. I didn't even know this. I'm setting you up. Yeah, no, it's just great because this movie does take a lot of sim- uh, suspension of disbelief. Like it just is asking us to really go with a lot because now we have a great sequence where Remo tries to escape the hospital without being seen undetected by McCleary because he's not buying into this whole, oh, now I have a new identity. I look different. I'm going to be uh, you know, working for this secret agency. And he attempts to steal an ambulance and McCleary's in the ambulance. McCleary's one step ahead of him the whole time, takes him to this, uh, what's supposed to be like downtown New York. It's a national bank. It's after hours, takes Remo inside. And it's just like, like a big building with a bunch of rows of computers. And you're supposed to think it's maybe a high tech facility of some sort. Mm -hmm. And they go into a little office. Like it's just an office, just your most like the most basic office you could imagine. There's a desk, there's a sofa behind the desk is Wilford Brimley. He's got a name tag on the door that says Harold Smith. And he's sitting at a, he's got a computer, which does, it looks like an IBM uh, or an Apple IIe, but this particular computer is somehow even more power. All Bill, all I could think of was war games. Cause didn't, oh, yeah. war games came out before this. Yes. Freaking Matthew Broderick's setup was a thousand times more complicated and looked a thousand times better than Wilford Brimley's setup in this top secret government agency room. Yeah. Which I get it. It's supposed to be covert. It's supposed to look simplistic, I guess, Mm -hmm. but still to believe that this little monitor and keyboard could provide all the, the, the here for the listeners at home, just to set it up. Imagine uh, your basic IBM desktop home computer or Apple IIe style home computer. And then all of these images and special effects and things are projected on the monitor as if that's what Wilford Brimley is actually watching on the monitor. It's all of this like live footage information with graphics and titles that are coming to him, files, information on people. It's like secret government agency stuff that's coming across this computer monitor and that's how they get all their info. And it's just like, wow, you're telling me this little computer can do it now again, though, the then and now, right? Cause as a kid, I totally bought it. Oh, I was yeah. like, that computer does everything. Mm-hmm. He just has to press a little button on his keyboard and all this info comes right out of his computer monitor. It all just happens magically. But now watching it, it's just like, wow, that's really cheesy. But yeah, so that was just my complaint. It's a little oversimplified, I guess. Because he was getting like magical footage of courtroom oh. hearings. I'm like, were they filming stuff back then? That he, he finds out that Major stuff? Fleming is tied, like she's tapped into the harp, like Grove Industries feed right. somehow. Because he was alerted that yep. the computer alerted him to that fact that somebody was spying on harp or whatever it was. But again, that's the wonder of 80s movies, Bill. And watching these movies as a kid, it's the suspension. It's the escapism. It just, you would go with it. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, we've lost some of that innocence today. For better or worse, it's the way it is. 
I'm just saying. What what else do you have for complaints? Okay, so there's a character we haven't talked about yet called Stone, who's like Groves. He's like has his right hand man, and then the right hand man's right hand man. So right, Grove is the main bad guy. Right. So he has a guy under him, and then there's a guy under him who's like the heavy. You're right. You, he's got his right hand man named Jim Wilson, and then uh, there he's got his number one thug or like henchman, yeah, who is Stone. Right. And the distinctive feature about Stone is he actually has like a diamond in one of his front teeth that Remo uses to uh, good effect later on in the movie. I'm just going to do both my stone complaints. (laughs) The first one is that guy is an amazing photographer with that little clip on. His little spy cam, like a little lapel on his collar. Yeah. Takes perfect pictures of that thing. I was like, oh, yeah. Just take a camera, hold it in front of you and take a picture without looking through the viewfinder and God knows what you get. This guy was doing this with the lapel thing. Right. I was getting amazing shots. I'm like, if that was me, I'd be getting like sky, the, you know, the flags that are hanging off the side of the building, <laughs> maybe a passerby. There's no way I'm getting a picture of nothing's Fleming. in focus. Yeah. Or, or ward. I'm like, come on, man. Where's your viewfinder that you're lining these pictures up. You're just That's shooting hilarious. at random and you hit perfect every time. He's like batting oh, yeah. a thousand on that. That annoyed me. I'm like, I'm sorry. No, you got to have something great. else so you know what to look at the pictures. And then the second thing I didn't understand. So the third act, like I said, I couldn't remember most of this. So there's a scene where like Fleming and Remo are taken through this military facility and they're trapped inside with this gas, which we don't even know what it is. So we don't even know if it's like trying to kill him or, or knock him out. And they tell Stone like, okay, once they pass out, you know, take him somewhere and ditch him. Right. Remo's not down yet. And Stone goes in there anyway. Premature. He can't yeah. help himself. He just can't help himself. He's got because he's he's pissed off about what happened earlier downtown. Oh, that's true. Because Remo choked him out like he was yeah. choking him. So he's got to get he's like got to get his little piece of revenge. Didn't work for you, dude. Nope. That was just stupid. Just it was. Him. I agree. Dumb. Just wait for him to die. Yeah. You know, that was kind of another complaint, too, because we had this whole thing with Remo learning breathing and all that stuff. So I thought he would, like, pull off some kind of technique. Totally. Totally. To stop the, like, slow down his breathing or something like that. No, he doesn't do any of that kind of thing. He just somehow stays conscious for Stone to come in. And then he kicks the crap out of Stone and uses his tooth to slash. Which doesn't make any sense either, because if Remo had breathed in all that gas... And he's down because Stone comes in and like kicks him in the ribs and while he's down. Then he's winded and he's gassed and all this. There's no way he kicks Stone's ass then. Yeah, there's a reason I couldn't remember any of this. <laughs> but I totally agree with you. You brought up a great point because I really thought that Remo was going to use that breathing technique. Yeah. And he was going to hold his breath, actually, or go into a state of just slowing down his breathing to the fact that he didn't ingest as much of the gas. And such so that he pretended like he slowed his heart rate down too as a result. Yeah. And looked as if he were dead or unconscious. And then Stone comes in and then he surprises him. He's like, ha ha. Yeah. That would have been, that's totally what should have happened. Yeah. In a total 80s movie. But instead, Stone's an idiot and goes off half cocked, uh, running into the room. And no, no. Dumb, dumb. Remo wasn't down yet. So, okay. Totally agree with you on those complaints. 
Uh, the Ferris wheel training bit. We didn't touch on that earlier. Oh, I did like that. Did you? I thought it was a great setup and then it didn't really go anywhere. Like he's hanging from the bottom of the, they're on, on the, the Wonder, Ferris the Wonder Wheel, wheel of, the Wonder of wheel. Coney right. Island. Yeah. Great setup. I'm thinking he's going to get on top of the, the car that uh, Chun is in mm-hmm. and like have to jump from one to the other and stay like balance. I agree with what you're saying. So I thought there was going to be much more to that sequence, but he kind of climbs up and then he has to duck a couple times. And then they, they get to the bottom and Remo's like, ha see, I passed this test. And I'm like, Dude, you really didn't do anything. <laughs> but I'm not giving him enough credit, probably, because he was kind of hanging from the bottom of it at first. Anyway, I think I just like the shots because I was like, oh, how'd they do that? Because it sounds Agreed. like it's him hanging off the side. That's what I liked about that. That's I what I liked about with. the scene. But I agree with what you're saying is he didn't really do anything besides do a rotation on the Wonder Wheel and avoid getting hit by <laughs> some of the other cars. The Wonder Wheel. But it I was, agree. but there, there were some, some cool good shots. shots. I was like, wow, is he really hanging off of there? That's it's really like yeah. earlier. The some of the stunts were cool, and mm-hmm. the photography was cool because it's like, oh shit, somebody's really doing that. Yeah, because the wides you could tell was a, a stuntman, but the yeah. close-ups, I was like, he's still kind of hanging out there. But no, I, I agree with you too. Like they could have done some cooler stuff with that. It was. I thought there was a missed opportunity there. Do you want to talk about the Statue of Liberty action sequence? Yes, let's do it. All right, I just have this first one. Yeah, man. Is Stone hires three guys to kill Remo. And he's like, here's 30. And I was like, wait, he's giving him $30. So I had to watch (laughs) to see, like, was he giving him hundreds at least? I don't even think he gave him that much. Work for cheap. I mean, all eyes are on that right now because they're trying to get that thing ready for, was the bicentennial? Centennial. 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 For the centennial. I think if someone died, it would kind of make the news. Three of you are going to be in jail. And you're oh, going to be in jail for, for like 300 bucks a piece. You're splitting it up. Oh, yeah. No, these guys are, are cheap. It's cheap labor. That they is are, cheap labor. They were just looking for some beer money. Yeah. They're like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Extra couple bucks we'll make today. Yeah, no problem. You're just that willing to do it. That kind of freaked me out. Oh, yeah. It's pretty dark. <laughs> I, it's You know what's funny, Bill, is I thought about that during this sequence. I was like, man, these guys are really jovial and joking around about they're going up there to kill this guy. Yeah. And they, they had just gone to work like it was going to be every, you know, a normal everyday kind of thing. They're uh, restoring the Statue of Liberty to all the scaffolding, but now they're committing murder. But they're like, oh, yeah, we got a little extra bonus today. Yeah. This is going to pay for our Schlitz, our 12 or a Schlitz after. That was disturbing. Yeah, I agree. So the setup is that Chun has actually taken Remo to the Statue of Liberty to pursue more training and to get Remo to get over his fear of heights. Mm-hmm. So that's the setup. And then we, you know, Stone is there with his, and he pays these guys off, these construction workers to get up there and uh, kill Remo. Meanwhile, Chun passes these guys. And just gets in the little elevator and goes down without. But <laughs> yep. Anyway, so yeah, I found this action sequence outside of some of great shots of Fred Ward standing on top of the or the stuntman standing on top of the scaffolding. Mm-hmm. Uh, some great like aerial like helicopter shots and a couple cool stunts. There's a great stunt in the sequence where uh, either Fred Ward and I think he does do a lot of his own stunts actually. 
I, I think I saw that in research, uh, grabs onto a pole basically and kind of swings out from the oh, scaffolding. Yeah. That's, That's cool. a great shot. That's a cool moment. I found this sequence a little problematic otherwise because we have our construction where workers turned henchmen turned uh, potential murderers going up the scaffolding, going after Remo and they are at the top of the Statue of Liberty and Remo's on one end of uh, the like scaffolding. Like it's a, a, a little walkway. I what do you call it? Uh, and they're trying to knock Remo off balance. Like they're stepping on one yeah. end of it, like trying to shake it. And he's on the, and I'm like, and Remo's all like off balance and all nervous. And I'm like, isn't this what you've just been training this entire movie for? The whole thing was balance. Yeah. I'm like, where's your Sinanju, Sinanju, whatever, uh, now, Sinanju, buddy? Yeah. Sinanju. Yes. Like, what happened to all your training, man? Why are you falling all over the place? I just thought that was like weird. Like, what do you, what the fuck are you doing, Remo? Yeah, he, uh, he kind of became a wet blanket. I was like, dude, yeah. you, could take, you should be able to take these guys out. I Well, that was the whole point. I'm like, here we get to see Remo be the professional assassin now. Yeah. Like, let's see some of your skills, bro. Let's see some of what you learned. I love the fact that the shorter thug of the three, the shorter henchman guy, mm-hmm. literally had the bad guy laugh. They kept cutting to him and he had this creepy oh, yeah. smile and he kept going, he, 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 he. Like, he That's- literally laughed like that. I was like, oh, my God. Laugh like a bad guy would laugh in an 80s movie. Yeah. He's like, got it. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> we'll pay you per laugh. The pacing was a little slow in moments again for me where it's just like, uh, man, if this was quicker, you know, but the thing is, this is one of those examples of then and now where now I'm used to freaking Daniel Craig in Casino Royale. And you know what I mean? That oh, opening yeah. se- sequence when he's up on that scaffolding going mm-hmm. against the, the parkour dude. Oh, that. That's a I remember watching that scene. Different level. My hair was standing up watching. It's one that. of the best. It was so man. tense. Yeah. It's still one of the best. But that's what we're used to now, right? Correct. This is 85. <laughs> it's different. Yeah. So that's, I, I'm a little more forgiving, but that's a perfect example of something like that, right? Yeah. It's a great setting, but the execution is Thank you. horrible. Uh, so after Remo is thought to be knocked off the statue, because he kind of jumps onto the actual Statue of Liberty and slides down and they think he falls off. Do they not see him swinging from the bottom of the what I, I looked this? I had to research this bill. What that chair is called that swings like. Oh, uh, yeah. Kind it's of like called a bosun's chair or boat swing chair. Yes. For, for on the side of a scaffolding that mm-hmm. the construction workers sit on. So. Remo obviously didn't fall off the Statue of Liberty. He's swinging from a rope that's attached to the chair. And I'm like, do the bad guys not see him blatantly swinging back and forth? They assume he's dead and they start going back down. Yeah, he's right there, man. He's swinging from them. You don't don't see him. He's still alive. I love once they all get to the bottom when uh, Remo, we get to see Remo actually does kind of employ one of his new skills because he learned how to float while he's running. Yes. Is that he goes across, he runs across the wet cement very awkwardly, I might mention, but mm-hmm. still managed to kind of float across it. And then the bad guy comes after him and, of course, sinks right into the wet Dude, cement. I love that death scene, though. Uh, it's awesome. But there's literally workers standing around just watching him. I'm going, <laughs> I know, you I- let this poor dude a helping hand. I don't give a shit if he's a bad guy. He didn't have a gun. That particular guy wasn't carrying a gun. Yep. There's another guy with a gun, but he doesn't have one. He just runs up and falls right in. 
And there's like a dude standing there with his hard hat on and going, <laughs> I like, love that Whoa. shot. I love that shot. <laughs> I, give him a hand, help him. He's dead. He's dying. I love it. Cause I'm, I, all I'm thinking is, do you think the guys are just kind of like, do we just leave him in there? I literally, <laughs> that's all I could think of. I was like, I do you think they're really talking about like, do we pull him out? Do yeah. we just leave him in there? That would have been great because if that was one of the lines, like if they had one of those lines, they were like kind of just looked at each other and were like, well, that was fucked up. <laughs> you know, kind of like, because they don't do anything. They're just, they have one guy just has that expression like, holy shit. That I, guy just sunk right into the cement. He's literally right in front of me and I'm not going to help him, but that just happened. The, I mean, we were talking about drowning earlier. That oh, would yeah. be worse. Oh my God. The drown in cement. That's horrible. They should have been seeing the guys. Do we, do we just leave him in there? <laughs> or just see a guy just come over and just start smoothing out right where he was. Just, yeah. I would have lost it. Like they're pissed off because that yeah, they kind yeah. of actually disrupted this smooth surface. Oh. Great. Here's my complaint. We know that Remo's going in. He's going in. He's gonna get he's gonna kill the bag. He's going after Grove. He's going right to the source. He knows where he is. He's gonna take him out. And we know that Major Fleming is also there at this facility. She's trying to get to the bottom of everything. And fucking Remo Williams shows up. He is camping out in the back of a truck, a military vehicle going into the grounds. Top secret. He's all covert like, except no bill. He's not at all. He literally falls out of the back of the truck, rolls around in the dirt in the middle of the facility out in the wide open. Yes. Stands up. Major Fleming walks right up to him and goes, well, look who it is or something to that. Effect. Yeah. And I'm like, holy shit, man, you are terrible at your job. That's how he enters the facility. So that's what was like a major complaint for me. I'm like, what is happening right now? And I was like, at least he wore his camos, I guess, to yeah, try yeah. and blend in. He, he went to the Sylvester Stallone victory escaping prison. <laughs> Dude, it's cool. so funny you bring that up because I was like, I thought for sure this was going to happen in the movie because I also forgot most of what happened at the at the end there. And there was a, a shot of a security gate, like closing or something, a security guard. I'm like, oh my God, here we go. Security gate, security <laughs> yeah. guards in an 80s movie. They're the worst. Yep. How are they going to fuck up? They're going to totally be looking the wrong way or they're going to miss it. And he's going to get into the facility, which pretty much did happen. Yeah. <laughs> But that made me think of that scene in Victory, too. Like, when oh, he's on God. the side of the car and the guards are like, oh, we're just oh, going to look good. Uh, yeah. No, I don't see anything. Nothing's weird, different. Weird here. Yeah, he just falls out of the back of the truck and nobody sees him except for Major Fleming. And she's like, oh, look at who it is. Mm. And speaking of Major Fleming, does she just fall in love with Remo right after? Yeah. Like, like immediately? That was so weird, too. After they escape the gas chamber, as we'll call it for now. He does save her life, but yeah. they get out and then she looks at him. It's just really awkward. She gets really dreamy. Yeah. Because yeah. that's another thing that never happened is we are learned earlier in the film that because Remo has been isolated and been training so hard for so long that he's become sexually frustrated, apparently. And he's wanting to know what to do about it. <laughs> and Chun's like, oh, lesson 36 or whatever. You tap the woman on the wrist yeah. and that it takes her to a state of bliss. And we don't get 
to see Remo do that. We, I thought at some point he was going to do that to her, but that never happened. Instead, she's all looking at him in this, like all dreamy and everything right after they get out of the gas chamber scenario. And it was just awkward and strange. It came out of nowhere. Uh, so I'm like, how did she fall in love with him so quickly? Yeah. God. Just a waste of a character. It really was. And so here's some of that misogynistic or chauvinistic, you know, oh, comments yeah. here. That happens right after that because all along Chun's been hanging out in the forest, apparently. And when he sees Remo with Major Fleming, this woman, he literally has this. He literally says, women should stay home and make babies, preferably man-child. Oh, yeah. I, I did it. Terrible. Ooh, Terrible. I did it. That will not be in the remake. No bueno. <laughs> Did you have any other complaints? I've just got a few more here for the very end. Um, the floating log. That's all. Oh, totally. Floating. Totally. That's all I was saying. What the hell is going on? There? That was so stupid. <laughs> little too convenient. It's I'm not, I, I don't even want to explain it. Sense. Let's just yeah. move on. It's just okay. stupid. It's just stupid. Well, it's great because that ties into my next complaint. Okay, which good. Is we have Remo's hanging off this log, which is like going down a zip line for some reason. And Grove decides to be an asshole. Well, he we know he's an asshole. But he's on a Jeep with the general and his right-hand aide and takes a gun and starts shooting at Remo, who's just out in the open, hanging off this log, can't hit shit. He's worse than a stormtrooper. Oh, yeah. He grabs the machine gun, too, and then starts blasting away at the log. Can't hit Remo at all. Grove is just a terrible shot. Yes. Here's my last complaint, but kind of question, is what does CURE stand for? That's the name of the top secret agency. Is that just the name of the agency or is it an acronym? I don't know. Because we never find out. No, we don't. But CURE is the name of the government agency, the extremely tiny, small, four-person. I guess CURE, you know, CURE the ills of... Well, right. I mean, we do know what their agenda is, right? right. Because the so problem, I guess, they, yeah. they do. I actually, to be honest, I thought it was a little topical. I thought that was kind of cool. Meaning today, sometimes we, we see there's a lot of corruption within, uh, you know, whether it be government agencies or police forces or, or whatnot. I was just curious as to what, yeah, CURE stood yeah. for. And, and we could both agree that Grove was a pretty weak villain. Oh, he's film. terrible. He's yeah. not even in it that much. No. That's a good call. That's a gr- Actually, that's a great complaint. This had a real villain problem. Yeah, a villain problem. They totally wasted Kate Melgrew and the yeah. third act blows. There we go. Nailed it. All right. You can Anything edit else? the rest of the, the complaints out. Yeah, that just covers <laughs> that's all true. That just covered, yeah, that covered everything. All right, let's move on to our next segment, which is, hey, it's that act. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. So I overthought this. (laughs) Yes. Because I'm always trying to guess who Jason's going to pick. And I'm thinking, Jason's thinking, I'm thinking who he's going to pick. That's right. So I think. You got it. You you nailed it. So hopefully. exactly what I think. So hopefully I'm taking Jason's pick right now. Right. So I got to go first because if I'm wrong, that's so okay. now I know who you're going to pick, Bill. Correct. Okay. So I am taking because it made me smile seeing him on screen. Of course. Really was Reginald 
Mel Johnson. Yes. Who was the ambulance driver, a.k.a. we all know and love him as Sergeant Al Powell from Die Hard. Oh, it was so yeah. cool seeing him in the opening right. of that movie. I was like, oh, it's, it's Sergeant Powell. I loved it's it. Al. Al. Talk to me, Al. Talk to me, Al. So I didn't realize this. This was his third movie, and all of them were quick cameos. And the two cameos he had been in before this were Wolfen, which is a really cool underrated movie that we need to do someday with Albert Finney and uh, Gregory Hines. And the other sure. movie was Ghostbusters. And I oh, forgot he's a Ghostbuster. Yeah, he plays, surprise, surprise, a police officer who works in the jail that the Ghostbusters are in. I think he has one line in That's Ghostbusters. Great. But yeah. And then, uh, yeah, really wouldn't until next year, he'd be uh, Gus and Crocodile Dundee. And then the year after that, Sergeant Al Powell in Die Hard. What a friendly face. Yes. What a friendly face, man. And one of the most endearing roles to have as Sergeant Al Powell in uh, Die Hard. Absolutely. But I agree. As soon as he came on screen, I'm just like so happy to see him. Yes. So lovable. Isn't that yeah. crazy? And he's How literally in it for like for two seconds. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> it has a quick line. And that's it. And I was just like, oh, shit. Because he's like the ultimate good. Like you want to be his friend. You want to yeah. be friends with Al Powell, man. Yeah. That dude is still working hardcore. Oh, yeah. I see him all the He's time. on Turner, the Turner and Hooch TV series now. Oh, is he really? Yeah. He's, I mean, he's regular. Is, he's working today. Regular. Is, he's was, awesome. Is he playing a police officer in that too? I, don't, I'm, I wonder if he is. I, yeah. I actually didn't do a deep dive on oh, okay. it. I just saw on his IMDb. But he's been on numerous TV shows, and he's done a lot of voiceover work. I mean, it's freaking Reginald Val Johnson, man. Val yeah. Johnson. He's the man. But man, you really captured it when you said you were just ha- so happy to see him because that's exactly he has that look where you're just like, man, is your best friend. Mm-hmm. It's like seeing your best friend on in the movie, like or a best friend you haven't seen in a long time. Good stuff, man. So for my, uh, hey, it's that actor. Um, I'm going to go with a character we were complaining about. The number one henchman, Stone. Is played by one of my favorite names for a character actor, bad guy of all time. Patrick Kilpatrick. (laughs) That's the name. That's not actually his real name. His last name is actually Kilpatrick, but I should have written down down his actual name. But uh, Patrick Kilpatrick. Love that guy. I mean, immediately you're like, oh, the bad guy. Yeah, he's a bad guy and everything. And he's great as the bad guy. And been in... So many movies. Just look at his IMDb. Death Warrant with Van Damme. Last Man Standing, Bruce Willis. Uh, he's in Minority Report. That was like a more uh, where you're like, oh, my God, this guy, this guy, he gets killed in every movie and keeps coming back. He's just a bad guy and everything. So yeah, my hey, it's that actor, Patrick Kilpatrick. All right, so let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia for? Remo Williams. So this is great, man. This one cracked me up. I always, you know, I'm taken from IMDb and Wikipedia. I just like to say that uh, first and foremost. But some of the actors that auditioned for oh, the yes, part this of is funny. Williams, they claimed to be like experts in the, the martial art of a, a Sinanju. 
which is a fictional yes. <laughs> art form that was invented for the books, that was written for the books. They go in, can you imagine? Said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I know, Sinanju. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, no, I got a fingerboard at home. I'm always practicing on it, you know? And uh, yeah, try and shoot me. Go for it. I'll just dodge the bullet, whatever. Sinanju's I always love like, those stories when actors talk about how, like, it's a movie role where they have to ride horses. And they're like, oh, yeah, I ride horses all the time. They're like, I've never ridden a horse before in my life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love when those it stories is, come out. Oh, it's great because, you know, you do have to, as an actor, sometimes you get those casting calls. So many, especially like cattle calls and things like that, you know, we're looking or the breakdowns. You get the breakdowns. Be, we're looking for someone who has this uh, talent or whatever, uh, has experience in law enforcement has experience in the circus has experience with it'll be like juggling it'll be random shit like talent you just say yeah yeah sure i got it. i can do that because you don't actually like nine times of ten, you're not really doing it in the audition or whatever but you just you're just trying to get a part any way you can mm-hmm. so you're always fibbing lying about the shit that you can do it's just funny but to be <laughs> to not even do any research on the actual martial art and just go in and then go, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm an expert in Sinanju. Right. So, Bill, I don't know if you you want to tell us, talk about, I'm sure you have this down somewhere, you at least are familiar. You're, you're, I, you know what I like to call you, one, one of your monikers from here on in. Oh. Or actually, this started from For you're Your setting, Eyes Only. You're setting me up for failure here. Go ahead. Well, you're, you're Bill Bond. You're Bill Bond. So, talk about the connection here. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, yeah, there's two connections um, because what they were hoping when they made this movie, it would be almost like the American version of James Bond. So right. they hired people that had worked on James Bond films to be on this. And the director um, was um, Guy Hamilton, who had directed four James Bonds before. Yeah. One, of, one of them considered probably one of the best Bonds of the series was Goldfinger. And then uh, one of the writers was Christopher Wood who um, actually um, wrote for some of the James Bond screenplay. So they were trying to bring in that Bond influence to hopefully that they were going to jumpstart basically a franchise in their own with uh, Remo Williams. There you go. Uh, So that's kind of cool. I think we've actually have covered a lot of the stuff that I had for fun facts and trivia. Okay. In an interview, screenwriter Christopher Wood. Oh, go ahead. Uh, What were you going to say? No, keep going. Uh, He expressed his opinion of why the film did not succeed. At the box office, he kind of questioned the choice of Fred Ward in the lead role, uh, saying he thought Ed Harris, who was up for the role, might have had more appeal. That's in hindsight, of course. And then went on to say that I had also written a slam bang action finale that was cut for budgetary reasons. That didn't help. Yeah. Like I said, couldn't remember the third act. So that makes sense. We got the uh, Mount Promise military weapons facility thing etc 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 this was interesting and it's probably one of the quickest facts of trivia dick clark was the producer of the movie i was like oh yeah i was like wait american bandstand dick clark yes new year's eve dick clark yes yes he was a producer on this movie random and i know that it just feels weird right yeah I'd love to know more about how that came to be. And supposedly, I guess they still have the rights to this. Supposedly. Dick Clark Productions. 
Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, and he also, I guess, was also a producer on um, the pilot episode, which yes. was filmed and yes. aired. I did watch some done. of that. I did too. I watched uh, the very, I watched the opening. Okay. Yeah. I watched, I watched the-, the cold open and the credits, which actually used the exact same theme song. It's Craig Sevens doing, does the music. And you have uh, Roddy McDowell playing the role of Chun. Right. And then they mysteriously transformed to California. Yeah. In the, in the same loft. I was like, wow, that's impressive. <laughs> they did a pilot. It was 1988, I believe. But then that's where it ended. That was yep. it. And you can find it on YouTube. So if you yep. want to watch it, kind of, I guess, like a pseudo sequel. So let's talk about the little bit about the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, absolutely. Statue of Liberty scene. It took months of negotiations to get permission to film there, which, of course, was doing the renovation at the time. They were very restrictive on what they could and couldn't do filming-wise. So they told them they could hang on the scaffolding, but they were not allowed to touch the statue itself. So what they had to do to get around that is they built a replica in Mexico of the top half of the statue Yep. And film that stuff in there and then intersperse the two. I thought they did a really good job. Absolutely. I think if I didn't read that, I might not have caught it, to be honest. I thought, because I've never been that close to the Statue of Liberty to know what's real and what isn't. They got me. Like I said, the scene itself is eh. But the fact that they filmed it like two or three different locations, it all looked like it was at the same place to me. The photography was great. Yeah. Yeah, they they must all the budget must have went on that because everything else. Yeah, it's a huge set piece. Yeah, it is. And the film is known for that set piece, or widely known for it. I mean, like you said, it's a, it's on the poster. Yeah, but yeah, uh, it's a the pacing, the execution isn't quite there, but the photography unto itself is great. The way it is shot, the way it's framed, the angles, because you do believe it is the Statue of Liberty, yeah. and it is the Statue of Liberty from certain angles, but. Uh, a lot of the close-ups and stuff, yeah, where all that stuff is shot in Mexico City. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So we have talked a little bit about the possibility, you know, taking this and remaking it, doing a reboot of this. I mean, it's just tailor-made for it. It's just yes. a great concept. So in 2014, Sony Pictures hired director Shane Black, a fan of the book series, to begin work on a script by Jim Olds, U-H-L-S. To begin work on a script by Jim Ulls and the Destroyer series co-author James Mullaney. I think he came on later. Yeah. Yeah, the initial writers have both passed away. So okay, they're, right. they're ghostwriters but, now. So in a 2018 interview, Black, Shane Black said the project was still very much in play. And he planned to work on the script with Fred Decker and Jim Mullaney. He praised Mullaney's books in the series as equal to those of Warren Murphy and Richard Sepiers, the original authors. Shane Black potentially doing a remake of this? I mean, I'm I'm all for it. I'm in. I'm, are you kidding? I'm in. Well, that's all I got for fun facts and trivia, Bill Band. Uh, unless do uh, you got something else? That's all I got. Cool. So uh, moving on to box office. So this movie was released on October 11th, 1985. So on a rumored budget of $40 million, so that's what, that's what I found, yeah, it grossed Whoa. only 14.3 domestic. Where did, what? Yeah. You're right. It must have gone all to the Statue of Liberty. It must have. Yeah, I was surprised too, because I was kind of like, I'm thinking, oh, this probably cost 
when they're talking about budget stuff, I'm like, oh, maybe this was like 17, 18. But what I could find said it was 40. So yeah, I'm I'm even shocked by that. That's why I said that's why I put rumored, because that's what I could find. Half of the budget went into the Apple IIe supercomputer. Maybe. Yeah, that's true. Getting all those computers together. So it debuted at number four at the box office, barely beating out Back to the Future, which was on its 15th week of release. <laughs> I mean, it beat it by like $100,000. That's how oh close it was. God. And even the number five. And then it was out of the top 10 by its fifth week of release. So I was trying to yeah. look like when it came out, like what the top 10 movies, like what was it really competing against that mm-hmm. it just bombed? The top five movies, I mentioned like Back to the Future is number five. Commando was number one with Schwarzenegger. Sure. Jagged Edge and then Silver Bullet. And then you had like Agnes of God in the top 10, Better Off Dead, which has come out in the summer, Sweet Dreams after. Like nothing that's like dominating the box office that. Right. I got you. Yeah. yeah, why, yeah, would, yeah. why would this not do well? But I yeah. Don't know. yeah, it didn't take. Yeah, so this would technically become, you know, basically a cult classic because... Uh, oh, no question. Did not make it in the theater. All right, so uh, moving on to reviews. Uh, when growing up in the 80s, we'd love catching at the movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies. Their review of the film was split. Gene really enjoyed the performances of the lead characters, Remo and Chung, and enjoyed the stunts. Roger gave it a slight thumbs down, thinking the film was too long and needed to be compressed. It was too strung out. And if you ever get a chance on YouTube, watch this episode of At The Movies, because they review this movie and Silver Bullet, and Gene and Roger are totally on opposite ends of these and have one of their little infamous arguments um, talking about it. It was was pretty fun. So get a chance to check it out. So uh, this brings us to... Final thoughts and questions. So do we have any final thoughts and questions on Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins? I have some, I'll start with some questions. One is, I have to agree. I think it was Roger, you just said that had this review. Yeah. We're talking about it being too strung out. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, that was my first question is, why is this movie two hours long? It didn't bother me. I You said that earlier, and I have to say it didn't feel like two hours. Correct. But I don't think it had to be like this movie could be a good hour, 40 minute movie. When you say that, yeah, I could go back and, and snip some things out. But yeah, no, it didn't bother me that it was two hours. Here's my other question for you, Bill. Have you ever dove into a giant pile of sand and then just popped out the top of it? Mm, no, I thought that was pretty cool. My final thoughts here really is I just want to say that I love Fred Ward. I do, man. As an actor, I've I, I've always liked him, especially since the, this movie. You brought up the right stuff earlier. I'm a huge fan of that film. I adore that movie. I really look forward to the day we do that movie on this podcast. Fred Ward plays Gus Grissom in that film. And the man, Gus Grissom, you know, tragically lost his life in the space program. And I love Fred Ward's portrayal of Gus Grissom in The Right Stuff. He's extremely sympathetic. That's so I was turned on to his performance in that. And then, of course, Rima Williams. And later on, man, I mean, Tremors, of course. Yes. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention one of my cult classic favorites, Miami Blues. 
Oh, yes. The Alec Baldwin vehicle, which is just as much about Fred Ward. And I forget his, it's, I mean, he plays the cop. That's kind of uh, tracking down Alec Baldwin in Miami Blues. Because uh, Alec Baldwin is a convict. That is one quirky movie. Love that's that a, Oh, yeah. Sergeant Hoke Mosley yep. is the role that Fred Ward plays in Miami Blues. Took his badge and his teeth. Yeah. <laughs> great movie. Mm-hmm. Great, great movie. And when did Miami Blues get? That was in 1990. So that was right before you and I went to school in Miami. That's why I, I saw that my freshman year. There you go. I actually had a Miami Blues poster in my dorm room by the end of my freshman year. Very That's how much I love that movie. Appropriate. So, yeah, I just want to give a shout out to uh, our guy, Fred Ward, who is still with us. Yes. And it looks like last thing he did was in 2018, the Trevor Tremors TV movie, oh, where wow. that was rumored. I don't think, I don't know if that ever happened. Uh, they keep turning out those movies, it seems like. He was on True Detective. Last but not least, you know, I was going back and forth, to be honest, Bill Bant, whether or not I would recommend this movie, because I really, as fun as some of it was, I just had issues with a lot of different things in this movie now, looking at it as a 47-year-old man. I still have such an affinity for it because of the childhood memories, but I'm saying wait for the Shane Black reboot. (laughs) Like... I just think this movie could be made into something really cool, something much better than its current form. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, it's this one is a tough one to recommend. It's still it, it's got some fun things in it. It's not a by any means a bad movie. It's just okay for me this time around. Just being honest, I'm still recommending it. Cool. I gotta track down these books. I want to read some of these books. Oh yeah, yeah. I hope someone gets their hands on this. And gets us back on screen. For sure. Yeah, I would say check it out. Like I said. I think it's worth checking out. I I would agree with you. I think it's worth checking out. Soundtrack's great. Some of the quotes are great. Yeah, there's some great great one-liners. There are some cool stunts, uh, some great stunt work in it. I mean, we did it. We had some favorite scenes. So there's some moments in it. So yeah, yeah, it's worth check it out. If you come across it, watch a bit of it. Yeah, just don't watch the credits. Just shut it off. <laughs> like closing credits. Yeah, you don't need to. You don't need to listen to music. Tommy Shaw. Poor Tommy. Sorry, Tommy. I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Next week will be October, which starts our Horror at the Cinema Month, where all the movies we discuss in October will be horror movies. You know, very original idea. I'm sure no other podcast is doing this, so you should listen to us. We'll be the only one probably doing this. <laughs> So we're going to start this off with Stephen King's Children of the Corn, starring Linda Hamilton, Peter Horton, and Courtney Gaines. As always, please subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. You can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook at all80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.